Well, we're so glad that you're here with us on this special day, uh, Mother's Day. I didn't even put my jacket on on the way to church thinking, it feels a lot warmer than they said it was going to be. And then I looked at the mountains and this ominous cloud coming over the mountains. It's a little chilly. I was in the foyer between services. It's kind of chilly out there. It must be really chilly outside. I want to talk to you today about the heart. There's a gentleman in our church. He leads our men's ministry. And a few weeks ago, um, now that he's in his 50s, his, his wife suggested he get a complete physical. So he got this big test done on himself and all these scans and blood work done. And they found out that he had three arteries that were being blocked. In fact, one of them was almost totally blocked within his heart. That he was so lucky he hadn't experienced a heart attack by this point. And the doctors immediately scheduled his open heart surgery. He just had that done a couple weeks ago. Had a triple bypass done. And he's doing well, recovering well. But what was so strange with this was he felt perfectly healthy. He felt so strong. He had no clue that there was something wrong inside of him. You know, that's so true of many of us, not with our physical heart, but with this spiritual um, part of us called the heart. Now, the, the Bible doesn't define it specifically, but there are over 900 references in the Bible to the heart. The heart speaking to the inner person, this inner person, the, the, the one that thinks and decides and wills and feels, this thing that we call the heart. And we know there's, there's a heart within us, a heart that can be broken, a heart that can be wounded, a heart that can be lifted. That, that's the inner part of us. And so I just want to generally look, look at this part of us that's inside that the Bible defines as a heart. Now, that heart is so important to us because when you look at someone on the outside, you don't realize that the majority of that person is on the inside. It's kind of like an iceberg. When the Titanic was traveling through the ocean and saw this great um, body of ice in the water, they, they knew that that could be dangerous, but they could avert it. But what what took down the Titanic was not what was on top, but was underneath. Because when you see an iceberg, you're only seeing a fraction of the chunk of ice. And it's that piece that was unseen that caused the greatest harm. What, what's unseen is so critical. Even when you look at like a tree, a fruit tree, what is unseen is beneath the ground, and yet those roots are so critical for the health and the vitality of that tree. Those roots provide strength and stability, the ability to draw nutrients from the soil. But it's all unseen. It's all under the surface. And I want to tell you that what's under the surface of you is the most important part, oh, most important part of you. And if you could learn one thing from today, it's this, that, that what's invisible is invaluable. What's invisible is invaluable. That what's inside of you is really the most important part of you. And the reason it's so critical you recognize that is, is a number of reasons. Our culture, for example, does not look at you that way. Culture looks at you as simply a, a physical body. And all you have to do is watch the commercials and how, how we're to take care and present this physical part of us. You don't see commercials talking about the character and integrity and the heart of a person. It's all about the external, about the, the, the body. We recognize that everything in our lives is affected by what's going on inside. That e even though you may not see it, there's, the wheels are always turning inside of us. There are things affecting every decision we make, every relationship that we have. All, all the things that we feel in life are affected by the condition of the heart. And an awareness of that can cause you to change what you do in life, what you pursue in life, what you emphasize in life, how you discipline yourselves. Many of us are very good at going to the gym and watching our diet. But also many of us have learned that we have to pay better attention to the heart. 
We've got to take care of this inner being within us. And when you do, better things happen in our lives. In fact, when you start paying attention to not only your heart, but the heart of other people, you hire differently. You date differently. You pursue different things in life because you recognize what's inside is so valuable. And if you ignore it, it's not only dangerous, it can be deadly. It can cost you relationships. It can cost you your life. Now, we're going to go back to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16 today. And as we learn through the book of 1 Samuel, God's in the process of writing new stories in people's lives. And there's a gentleman named Saul. Saul was king over Israel. And Saul was not a a great king. He started off good, but his heart began to show um, through his actions over time that he was rebellious, that he was prideful, and he begins to drift from the Lord. And when God's removed from the story of your life, the ending isn't good. And so God takes the throne away from Saul, and he's going to give it to someone else. And we're going to learn about who that someone else is through this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along with us. If you have a bulletin, you might want to jot some things down in your notes as we go along here. But here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Now, oftentimes when God sends someone on a mission, this will happen to many of you, your first response is going to be fear. I'm afraid. And that's why you always see God sending people and, and them rising up with fear. And God says, fear not, for I am with you. So God is with Samuel. And the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And very similar to that, as we start to follow the Lord in the path in our lives, God says, I'm not going to show you the whole plan. I'm going to show you, show you a piece at a time. As you take each step, I'll unfold the next step. I'm not going to tell you everything right now, but I will, I will show you what to do when you get there. So I love Samuel's response. Samuel did what the Lord said. He said, yes, God, I'll do that. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. Samuel's starting to catch on that, you know what, I gotta quit picking people that I think God would pick. I gotta quit doing things from my perspective. I've gotta listen to the Lord and understand his perspective so he doesn't make that mistake again. Samuel sees the next guy, says the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. 
So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully, and here's the name of the boy, upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Samuel thought he knew the one guy to pick. As soon as Eliab stood before him, he said, surely that's got to be the guy. He's got good stature. He looks the kingly type. Surely that's the one. And God says, nope, not him. In fact, the father thought, there's seven good choices here. Really, you could pick any one of them. I've got another son, but he's out back, and you wouldn't want him. He's too young, and he's not really fit for this. But here's the seven I will present before you. You know, I wonder how David felt knowing that his own father would not even present him as a possibility. And that's the problem many of us have, is we look at people so differently than God looks at. And the things God, are the, are the, the ones people reject, the ones we overlook, God often says, that's the very one I want. And, and the reason is because God chooses the foolish things of the world, the rejected things of the world, to shame the wise. And he does it by choosing David. We are obsessed with the external, but God isn't. We are obsessed with the external, but God isn't. Our whole culture is built upon that. Oh, what do I have here? That, what is it? Can of Coke? So how many of you say a can of Coke? Okay. Some, some of you are skeptical. Like, I don't know, it's a trick question. You know, and it is kind of a trick question. It's not a can of Coke. Now, you notice it's never been open, but it's not a can of Coke. Oh, it's Pepsi. It's a trick. It's not even Pepsi. There is nothing in the can. And the reason I know is because I bought this can several years ago. It's a Robin Yount 3000 Hits commemorative can. He did that in September of 1992. This can is, it may even be close to 20 years old. I've had it sitting on a bookshelf in my home. One day I noticed that there was this gooey brown stuff all over my bookshelf. And this can was empty. And I thought, how, where did it come out? It's never been open, and it's empty. And see, you may think it's a can of Coke. It is a Coke can, but it is not a can of Coke. And the reason I point that out is because you can be fooled by appearances. You can be fooled by the external and say, well, I, I'm going to make a judgment based on appearance. And so you make a choice. But the problem is, You've got to look beyond the external to the in internal. And see, our culture isn't very good at doing that. If an alien were to visit one of our grocery stores and, walk and, and go through the checkout line, the alien would probably determine that Americans love two things. Candy bars, right? Every checkout line, you see all kinds, a whole display of candy bars. There's Hershey's and the Nestle's and all that. Candy bars, we love candy bars. And we love cute bodies because there's all these magazines and what's on the cover of the magazines? Cute bodies. I mean, they are airbrushed, they're toned and tan, they're sculpted, they're photoshopped, whatever it is, but they look pretty good, right? You don't see ugly people on the covers of People magazine or, or, or some other tabloid that's on the checkout line. It's all about the physical. It's all about the presentation. The other day, I was flipping through the channels, and uh, there was a short documentary about a Dr. Matlock who's a plastic surgeon, excellent plastic surgeon, profound. In fact, he had a lady come visit him a few years ago, and she was dealing with some baby fat, had a baby, had about 40 pounds extra weight that she couldn't get rid of, so, so she went to see this doctor, and he says, you know, um, I, I could do something for you. He said, how would you like the Wonder Woman makeover? And she said, I like the sounds of that. So um, 
He began to mark up her body with the magic marker of all the things. You know, let's cut away here and little liposuction here. And, and I don't know. He says, I'll give you a Brazilian butt lift. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I think my dad gave me a swat. must have done the same thing years ago. But he, he was going to do all these things for her. So he did all these things, and she lost the weight. And when she healed from her surgery, he says, you know what, how would you like to go out on a date? And on the date, he proposed to her. They got married. They've been married eight or nine years now. And over the course of their married life, he's continued to do his surgeries on her. And he's done them on himself too. He's injected different things, different places. He believes that they both have perfect bodies now. And I got, people judge this man's heart. And he says, hey, I'm committed to her. I'm committed to her as my wife. I love her for better, for worse, for richer, for poor. But she adds this, but not fat. But not fat. Can you imagine if, if, if your husband was the plastic surgeon, you're sitting at the breakfast table, he's looking over and he's kind of bending his head a little bit. You know what he's thinking, right? Yeah. You know, I, I could take care of that little thing there. You know that, the, the wing, I could, I could deal with that, you know? Just, just let me, give me the knife and give me the needles and I'll take care of that. I mean, when does it end? When, when is he going to say, you know, you know what, let's just let nature do what nature does? But he's going to, you know, continually look at keeping her in this perfect state. And, you know, their daughter says, I don't want to have plastic surgery ever. I want people to love me the way I am. And, you know, that's so brilliant from that little girl because there are women in particular. Now, I know there's a little pressure on guys, but really it's on the women. That you've got to look a certain way to be acceptable. And there are women who are very beautiful, who see themselves as ugly and are starving themselves and getting eating disorders and living in depression because they're not like that plastic model on the cover of the magazine. Now, I wish we could bring back that old song by Billy Joel, I love you just the way you are. Because we are a culture focused on the external. You know, and if you want to look this up sometime, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, it reminds us to have, the, the definition of biblical beauty is to have an inner beauty. Have this inner beauty of a, gentle spirit, a submissive spirit. Now, that's a far greater worth than jewelry and fine braided hair. Because the Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He sees below the surface. I watched the NFL draft, the, the first round of the draft the other night, and I, there was a big buildup for this draft. And if you're a football enthusiast, you want to see what your, who your team is going to draft, you get interested in it. And there have been debates over the last several months of who's going to be number one, two, and three, and where will Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel, um, stand in the draft? Could he be number one, or will he fall down? And players go through these NFL combines and these tests to determine their strength and their speed, you know, the accuracy of the throws and all those kind of things. They're getting ranked in every, every category. And so when it comes time to the draft, people make their picks. And, you know, sometimes they make really good picks and they work out, and sometimes they don't work out. But what's so amazing is sometimes the player that, that everyone overlooks ends up being the star. In the year 2000, there was a, a man who played backup quarterback most of his college life, got to start his senior year. He was drafted as quarterback 199th by the New England Patriots. And when their starting quarterback got injured, 
Tom Brady was inserted as his replacement, led his team to the Super Bowl that year. And since that time, he's continued to be their starter for the last, you know, 13, 14 years. He's gone to more playoff games than any other quarterback in history, won three Super Bowls, appeared in five Super Bowls matching John Elway's record. And he is going to go down to history, I believe, as one of the top five greatest quarterbacks that have ever played the game. And yet, on draft day, people said, he's too short, his arm's not strong enough, he's not fast enough. He's not made for the NFL. And what they didn't look at was what was behind the physical, the leadership, the poise, the character, what's made him a great quarterback. See, uh, an obsession with the external is an obsession with the wrong things. And when God looked at those eight boys, he said, that's the one I want. I want that eighth round pick right there. He's the king. That guy is going to be the king. That guy is going to be the greatest king that's ever led the nation of Israel. He's going to be the greatest king that's ever walked the face of this planet. How do I know? Because I see something no one else sees. I see the heart. Because what's invisible is invaluable. But what's invisible won't always stay invisible. Because you cannot hide what's inside. It will come out. It's going to be like the Coke. That Coke was in this can. It's not in the can anymore. It got out. I don't know if it's that acid within this Coke product that just ate its way out. Just makes you wonder when you go to lunch today what Coke's going to do to your stomach. There may be holes there eventually. But what's inside eventually works its way out of the heart. Moments when you're tired, when you're weak, and when you let your defenses down, there becomes an explosion. It's like a volcano. That most of the time you're able to keep it under the wraps. You do really well at hiding all that stuff that's going on inside. But then that moment comes. And you know where that moment typically happens? In the home. All of a sudden, it just blows up. And mom or dad's becoming verbally violent, maybe physically violent. Words are flying everywhere. There's spit going everywhere. And and they're just so angry. And yet they go to church and they're smiling. And they go to work and everyone thinks they're the happiest person. You may have heard the phrase, we, um, we hurt the ones we love the most because we let the guard down at home. It's like, okay, I can relax at home. But, but I believe that your spouse and your kids see more of the real you than anybody else. And you may think after a big explosion, you know, the next day you want to apologize. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't mean it. That's not the real me. That's not who I am. But here's the truth. That is who you are. That is more true of who you are than what you've been presenting. Because because you've just been able to cover up who you are. You've been able to monitor it. You've been able to manage it and not let it out. But when the real you comes out, it ain't pretty for some of us. And I know there are people in this room who says, you know what? You don't know my real mom or dad, but I do. And that's why we need the Lord to help us with what's inside. The explosion is not the exception to what's in the heart. The explosion is the expression of what's in the heart. Let me say that again. The explosion is not the exception. It's the expression of what's in the heart. And the reason I know that is because Jesus spoke about this in the book of Matthew. Chapter 15. Verses 18 and 19, where he says, The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, 
And these defile them, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. They come from the heart. And the context of this statement by Jesus was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were ones who had all these little rules that they needed to follow to please God. And one of them was this washing ceremony, that before they ate a meal, um, they had to wash. Now, some of you are going to go home and say, oh, pastor said we didn't have to wash before we eat. Now, I didn't say that. <laughs> but they, they made a big deal. And they didn't have antibacterial soap anyway, so I don't know what good the washing did other than get dirt off the fingers. It didn't kill the germs. But so they would wash all the way up to their elbows. And so Jesus comes to this meal, and he doesn't do the thing, doesn't do the ceremony. And his disciples say, well, if Jesus isn't going to do it, we're not going to do it either. And they're getting all upset because, hey, your people aren't doing the thing they're supposed to do. Scrub up, you know, before they eat. And, and Jesus tells them, there's a, there's a greater filth in your life, and it's not on your arms. It's not on your hands. It's in your heart. For it's not what goes in. It's not, it's, it's not the germs that go in that defile you. It's what comes out because what comes out reveals what's been brewing within your heart. And every heart catches and stores hurts and disappointments and wounds and frustrations through the course of your life. It is like in, your, in the plumbing system in your house, you have what's called a P-trap. And, and the P-trap, it's kind of shaped like the letter P, it, it comes down from your sink and it bends and it goes up and it keeps the gases, those stinky sewage gases from coming back into the house. But what it also does, it catches things as they come through your sink and they don't get flushed through. And so uh, I've had to take off the P-trap every now and then of, a, of, a, of our home and clean it out. And it's not pretty. <laughs> Amen, brother, right? You've done it too hair and black slimy stuff you go where did this stuff come from and oh this is gross and you clean it all out and you put it all back together well your heart is kind of like this um p-trap that collects the stories of your life and all those times when you were deeply hurt and all those times when you were deeply disappointed and all those memories of things that you did that you regret they start to kind of accumulate there and they just build, and they build. And, and every once in a while, you'll hear a sermon, or you'll watch a movie, or you'll hear a song, or you'll see something, and it'll trigger something that was stored back in your heart. And you go, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to feel that right now. And so we just kind of hide it to the side. You know, when um, birthdays and Christmas comes around, I, I, as much as I love those days, personally, they bring back pain in the heart for me. Um, we had six kids in our home, and I can remember out of my 18 years of childhood, only a couple gifts I ever received for Christmas or birthday. It, it was so insignificant from what we received. In fact, I cannot remember a single birthday present I received from my family my whole life, except for one. And the reason I remember it is because it was so unlike my dad. I had a friend in high school who lived up on a hill over a mile away, and I, I would spend a lot of time at his place. I'd walk up to his house. I would walk home from his house, and I would hint to my parents, man, it would be really nice to have a, a bicycle, like a 10-speed, a 3-speed. I could just zip up to his house. I could, I could do it in like five minutes. And so I kind of laid hints down that I was kind of hoping maybe they'd find a used bike for me. Well, for my birthday, I get this cardboard box, and in it is a big picture of a bicycle. 
My, my dad got it from Monkey Wards. Now, I know it's Montgomery Wards. My dad called it Monkey Wards. So he, he would get this big bike. For, he's got a good deal. At, it was on sale at Monkey Wards. I go, oh, awesome. And so I open it up, and I start to pull this bike out because we have to assemble the, the handlebars and everything on it. And I notice it is not a 10-speed. It's not a 3-speed. It's what we might call a beach cruiser. It's got big, fat, round tires. And I'm thinking in my head, oh, no, this is going to be tough to ride up the hill to my friend's house. And, and I'm going to be kind of embarrassed to be riding with my buddies who are on their 10 speeds, and I've got this big cruiser bike. And so my dad looks at me, and he sees that uh, I'm not overjoyed. He says, uh, do you like it? I've always been an honest person. <laughs> and I don't know how to lie well. I really don't. And so I thought, i got to tell him the truth. So I said, well, I really needed a speed bike. He said, okay. Put everything back in the box. Took the box. Disappeared. Never heard another word. Didn't get a 10-speed. Didn't get another bike. Didn't get another gift for my birthday. You know, even just thinking about that brings back pain in my heart. And you know, the pain isn't that I didn't get a bike. The pain is that my dad had, had done something that for him was so significant, and I disappointed him. You know, that, that hurts. I have a daughter who's not my biological daughter, and I love Stephanie so much. And we, when we moved to Colorado when she was a little girl, well, she was in elementary school, her biological father, who she spent time with every other weekend, decided he wasn't going to contact her anymore. No more, no more phone calls, no more visits, no more birthday cards, Christmas presents, anything. You know, I didn't realize this until many years later that she went through a phase of her life where she struggled with rejection. My own birth dad doesn't love me enough to give me a phone call on my birthday. Am I broken? Am I sick? Is there something wrong with me? And many of you have felt that maybe through a divorce in your life. You start to t- turn it inside. Or maybe you've been through a divorce and you felt rejected. Or maybe you worked for a company and you got rejected or applied for something. And, you know, rejection is one of those big hurts that gets lodged in our hearts. Loneliness, disappointment, shame. All this stuff starts to accumulate. And it just sits there and we put on this facade that everything's okay. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I wonder when we ask people that, do we really want to know? If you do, then ask someone, how's your heart? How's your heart? In fact, what a great question to ask your kids. How is your heart today? Because they understand that there's a part within them that can get wounded and broken. And we, we stuff it down there, and then the moment comes where it builds and builds and builds, and boom! And people, what just happened? What just happened? Well, it's been an accumulation of stuff that's been shut down. The, the lid's been put on it for so long, it couldn't hold it anymore. And something breaks. And when it breaks... It begins to affect everything around. In fact, that's that's what the heart does. Even though we may think it's under control, it is already affecting everything about you because the heart is the hub of everything. It is the hub. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, it says, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Not some things are affected by it, but everything you do flows from the heart. It's It's like Grand Central Station. For your thoughts, for your beliefs, for your decisions, for your words, for your behavior. You know, just picture a heart and everything coming from this heart. 
from every direction. That's what's happening inside you. Your heart is the hub, and everything passes through your heart. Everything's affected by it. It explains why sometimes you can think mentally. I I don't know why I feel the way I do. I, I, I can't explain it. But I should be happy, and I'm not. I should be very grateful, but I don't feel that way. And there seems to be this disconnect between reality and then the reality of what's happening inside of you. And you say, I can't explain it. Now, I know sometimes there might be other factors, hormones and things like that, but there are a lot of times that we're puzzled, like, I don't know why I feel so depressed right now. Logically, it doesn't make sense. It's very likely it's a symptom of something deeper within. And just like your physical heart, you've got to pay attention to the symptoms. Now, one of the ways that the heart reveals itself and I think it's the biggest way, is through your words. Because the words are like this very thin valve. The mouth is this thin valve that tries to control the heart, but things leak out, and most of the time when they leak out, they come out through your words. So you say things, and you go, oh, I wish I could have pulled that back. I wish I wouldn't have said that. And, and maybe, maybe you've said something very sarcastic and cutting to someone, and then, you, then you'll come back and say, oh, I really didn't mean that. But the truth is, you did mean a lot of that. You didn't mean to say it that way. You didn't mean to inflict the harm on another person. But to be honest, that probably was a greater reflection of what's inside of you. And the other person knows that. Because even, even when you do that, you say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Ta- I want to take those words back. You can't. And, and I totally disagree with this like nursery rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is so, li- so, so much of a lie. Because I... I, I had a lot of bruises and scrapes and scabs on me growing up. I can't remember the cause of many of them other than falling off a bicycle. Um, but I can tell you times when people said something and the words stuck. And there may be words from a parent, words from a loved one, words from a coach, words from a spouse or ex-spouse, words from a parent. And they've landed there. It's like an arrow that gets stuck and you can't pull it out. And the reason I think words stick so deeply is because Words come not from the mouth, but from the heart. So they come from a heart, through the mouth, to you, through your ears, to your heart. They go from one heart to the other heart. And you start to replay those words. You go, there's some truth in what they said. That's what they really believe. That's what they think about me. Words are a great revelation of what's going on inside. But maybe the most important place where our heart affects us is every relationship. It affects our relationship with our family, our relationship with strangers, our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. It affects every single relationship. Beauty, they say, is skin deep. But, but love goes all the way to the core. And it, it, the reason why it's so hard in relationships is because relationships are based on intimacy. You get close to someone, and Promise keepers used to give this definition for intimacy that I really liked. I've never forgotten it because it's so true. Intimacy means into me see. Into me see. I want you to see into me. I want you to know the real me. And I believe that many of us as even married couples go through our married lives and we really don't know each other that well. I mean, we know what we like to do. We know, we know, what, we wanna, we know what each other likes on their coffee. We know what TV programs you like but we don't know the heart real well. And the reason is because we don't feel safe. 
I don't feel like I can share the real me with you because you might not like it. You might reject me. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hide this part of me because I don't know how to deal with it. I don't feel safe. And yet, yet God wants us to have that safe place. God, God wants us to have a place where we can have intimacy. That's why in the Garden of Eden, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And what I love about that picture isn't so much that they're standing there saying, hey, you're naked, I'm naked, we're not embarrassed about that, but they're without shame. And I think it's a picture of this total acceptance. I accept all of you. All of the hurts, all the things, I want to know that. I want to know you, and I love you. I feel safe with you. See, a a lot of us don't feel safe with our spouse. A lot of kids don't feel safe sharing things with mom and dad. A lot of kids feel like, I can't tell them because they're just going to give me some quick answer, some rule, and I just want someone to understand what's going on in my heart. I want to urge you parents, tune your ears into your kids' hearts. Find out what's beating in there. Find out how healthy the inner part is in their life. When I was in high school, I began to realize that I not only had a physical body, but I had an inner body as well, an inner life as well. And they often didn't match. Like sometimes I, I, I could feel physically really good. And yet my heart would feel really bad. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. How come I'm like this? And other times I'd feel like physically sick. And yet I would feel very good in my heart. And I noticed those were different. I began to journal. And one of the things that's helped me for journaling is, is a journal is, guys call, call them journals, girls call them diaries. Okay? <laughs> so I, I would write, dear Lord. And, I'm, and I've got journals since I was in high school. I've done this since I was 17 years old. It's the place for me to process what's inside. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm dealing with. God, give me wisdom. God, give me strength. Whatever it is, I can journal it to God. And that's part of how I've, I think, been able to have a pretty healthy heart. And I think that's part of David's secret, too, because there's a book of the Bible that really is David's journal. It's called Psalms. And when you read Psalms, you, you get the highs and lows of his life. You get the struggles of David's life. You get the questions and the doubts of his life. And I'm saying all that because you've got to be in touch with what's going on in your heart. And what if you get in touch with your heart and you realize it's not very healthy? There are things broken in my heart. There are things that are dark in my heart. Well, here's some good news. God can perform a heart transplant. God is the great physician who can help us with our heart issues. In, in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is tricky. People say, follow your heart. You've got to be careful. Your heart is deceitful. It will lie to you. And you can't fix it. It's beyond your cure. But God can fix it. God can cure the human heart. You may be putting a mask on. You may be putting a facade on what's going on inside. But God wants you to trust him with your heart. In fact, one of the verses I, I learned when I was very young was trust in the Lord with all your heart. But I want to I ask you to look at that verse a little bit differently. To trust in means to entrust. So like, it means I give someone um, power and responsibility for a part of my life. So if you entrust your money to the bank, I'm putting them in charge. So I entr- I'm, I'm going to entrust my kids to the babysitter. I'm going to entrust the Lord with something. What is it? All my heart. Entrust the Lord with all my heart. We think that's all my commitment, all my resolve. Maybe what God's asking for is, no, I want all the contents of the heart. 
I want you to entrust with me all the fears, all the pain, all the shame, all the darkness, all the dirt, all the brokenness inside. Entrust it to me because I could heal that heart. We've had a number of people in our church go through a class. It's a, it's a several-month-long class called Healing Journey. And they've come out of that class saying, you know what, for the first time in my life, I felt like my heart was put back together because God used the scriptures to deal with this issue deep inside of me. And I applaud those of you who've had the courage to go through that class. They've only offered it for women in the past. They now have a men's, cor- a men's course. And I encourage you. That's a need of your life. God can heal your heart. But what if you look in and say, you know, my heart's beyond healing. My, my heart's beyond just being repaired. Maybe you're someone that says, I look, in the, I look in, inside myself and see a very dark heart who's very negative, very ugly, and I hide it from a lot of people, but I don't like what's inside. God tells you this, I will give you a new heart. In the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, God makes this promise, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God is willing to give you a new heart. You know, every once in a while at church, I run into someone that I see, and they're very quiet. And maybe this, this, this describes somebody here today. I see you, and, and you're not very engaged in the worship, and you look like you can't wait to get out of this building into the car, and you look like someone that got drugged to church. Not drugged to church. I know it's Colorado, and we have <laughs> loose laws on that stuff. Not drugged, but drugged to church by mom by your spouse, by grandma. He says, I, I, I'm doing it for them. Maybe it's Mother's Day. They want me to come on Mother's Day. That's why I'm here. And I've seen some of you in the foyer. And it's not that you don't believe in God. It's not that you don't want to believe in God. But for many, it's that your heart's been so broken. It's been so wounded, so hurt. And you don't know where to turn. And you wonder if, if even this church is a safe place for you. And I, and I want to encourage you. I think there's a lot of safe places within this church. But I want to tell you this. God is a safe place. And he loves you more than you ever know. And he, he takes your heart tenderly. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened. Come to me for I am gentle. God is someone who cares for your heart more than anybody. And I'm so grateful God gave us mothers now, I don't know if your mother was like this, but my mother stepped in where my dad failed. And she's the one that taught me to pray. She's the one that took me to church. She's the one that demonstrated sacrificial love. I'm so grateful for my mom. Because through my mom, I found the Lord. And moms, I want to say thank you to you today for that. This week, Kevin Durant received the highest award for an NBA player, the most valuable player award. And in his 20-some minute speech, as he thanked all the people in his life that contributed, all the players, all the coaches, there was one person he wanted to really say thank you to. And here's the last few minutes of his speech. You need to see this. I think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. We were stacked, the odds were stacked against us. 
single parent with two boys by the time you were 21 years old. Everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No, no bed, no furniture, and we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other. Because we, that's what we, we thought we made it. And when, you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. And you wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street. You put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrificed for us. You the real MVP. like to thank God again. He's the first and the last, Alpha and Omega. I thank you for saving my life. I appreciate it. I don't think anybody in my life has, has modeled Christian love more than my mother. Sacrificial giving. To give up things that she could have demanded for herself for her kids. But through my mother, I saw the God she loved. The God that was more faithful to her than her own husband. The God who has been there. And like Kevin Durant, I want to say thank you to God today. It's a day to say thank you to mother. But even more importantly, it's a day to say thank you to God. In some church traditions, they call this the Eucharist. And so uh, I'm going to ask our ushers to go and prepare as we get ready to serve the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist means to give.